Good evening. What you are about to witness is an unrehearsed, uncensored interview. My name is Mike Wallace. The cigarette is Philip Morris. Tonight, we go after the story of one of the most extraordinary men of our time. You see him behind me? He's 88-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright, perhaps the greatest architect of the 20th century, and in the opinion of some, America's foremost social rebel. I feel large. I feel enlarged and encouraged, intensified, more powerful. Because why? Because in the one instance, you're inspired by nature. In the other instance, you're inspired by an artificiality contrary to nature. Am I clear? You are clear, although I must say that I don't agree, because whatever, whatever inspires... A reaction of the sort, we give ourselves away. Somebody said the museum out here on Fifth Avenue looked like a washing machine. This one that you're building? That's one of my buildings. Well, I've heard, heard a lot of that type of reaction, and I've always discounted it as worthless, and I think it is. I understand that last week, in all seriousness, you said... If I had another 15 years to work, I could rebuild this entire country. I could change the nation. I did say that. And it's true. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On the afternoon of August 15, 1914, perhaps the world's most famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, was busy in Chicago developing the design of the ill-fated Midway Gardens concert venue and summer garden. Some 200 miles northwest in Spring Green, Wisconsin, Martha Borthwick, a translator, librarian, and Wright's longtime mistress, was just sitting down to lunch with her two children on the porch of the couple's country retreat that Wright had dubbed Taliesin. Though almost everyone else called it the Love Cottage, or Wright's Love Castle. Wright had met Borthwick, who everyone called Mayma, a decade earlier when she and her then-husband, Edwin Cheney, had hired Wright, who also happened to be their neighbor, to design a new home for them. Wright was immediately taken with Cheney's wife and set about wooing her. The couple developed what was referred to by outside observers as an open closeness, and what insiders called a deep and deeply scandalous love. Wright was married with six children at that time. Borthwick had two. Wright, 
47 years old and already considered one of America's greatest architects, was a sought-after media darling. He could always be counted on for a controversial quote that would sell papers. He had almost single-handedly created American modernism and was perhaps the single biggest critic of American moralism. Wright famously decreed that there was one set of societal rules for the ordinary person and another set of rules, which in Wright's parlance really meant no rules, for intellectual heavyweights, or as he liked to say, geniuses. And in his mind, and many others, he very squarely sat in the rarefied corner of the ladder. Wright's notoriety obviously did not help the couple's attempts at a hush-hush affair. They first fled to Europe in 1909 to escape the glaring lights, prying eyes, and general scorn being heaped upon them from all sides. On this trip, Maimon and her husband officially divorced, but Wright's wife Catherine refused, leaving Wright's critics seething. Despite the six children he and Catherine shared and Catherine's refusal to grant a divorce, Wright effectively checked out of his family's life. Upon Wright and Maymaw's return to the States, Wright purchased property in Spring Green, Wisconsin, and set about building a fantastic mansion which he would call Taliesin, or Shining Brow in Welsh, where Maymaw and her children could escape the ridicule of the press and neighbors, and she and Wright could enjoy their torrid and now very public affair. The peace and tranquility would not last long. One grisly summer afternoon, Two years after moving to Spring Green, Wright and Maymaw's world would very literally go up in flames. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever Confidential, where we dig into the lesser-told stories of the darker side of design, the shadowy, sometimes sordid tales hiding under a glossy topcoat of respectable legacy. This is Episode 3. Frank Lloyd Wright and the Murders at Taliesin. As always, here to help me tell this truly shocking tale is writer and editor Andrew Wagner. Mama and her two children, John 12 and Martha 8, were sitting down to lunch at Taliesin East in Spring Green on that summer afternoon. Taliesin was a hive of activity, as it generally was with many of Wright's gardeners, draftsmen, carpenters, and colleagues running about, working on far-flung projects, as well as Taliesin itself. As was common at the time, Taliesin also employed a number of servants, including a recent hire from Barbados, Julian Carlton. As Maimon and her children sat down to lunch on the front porch, 25 feet away, the workers ate their soup at another table, when suddenly a 19-year-old draftsman Herbert Fritz noticed something unusual. We heard a swish as though water was thrown through the screen door, Fritz would later recall. Then we saw some fluid coming under the door. It looked like dishwater. It spread out all over the floor. Carlton had just served lunch to Mama and her children when he turned to his wife Gertrude, also a servant of rights, and instructed her to leave. He then returned to the porch with a hatchet and brutally attacked Mema and the kids. When he finished his unbelievable act of cruelty on the porch, he quickly doused the floors with gasoline, 
the dishwater-like liquid Fritz had noticed, while slamming the door, locking it, and sending the whole house into flames. In the frenzy that followed, draftsman Emil Brodel, handyman Thomas Bunker, and Ernest Weston, the son of rights carpenter and master craftsman, William Weston, would meet the same grisly fate as Mama and her children. While it is safe to assume there could be no fate worse than being engulfed by flames, the five unlucky souls that frantically fled for their lives that afternoon would meet an end just as fatal. Waiting on the porch, axe in hand, Carlton made quick work of each individual as they unwittingly jumped from one horrible end to another. Carlton swung his axe in frenetic fashion as his former colleagues broke through the barricaded door or jumped from a nearby window into the courtyard. Fritz, the 19-year-old draftsman, had managed to escape the burning house, and by rolling down a nearby hill, put out the flames that had consumed his hair and clothes, only to look back and witness Carlton's continued attacks. Ernest Weston, the master craftsman who had built Taliesin, and gardener David Lindblom would also manage to escape and run more than a half a mile to the nearest house with a telephone, quickly alerting authorities to the atrocity. As residents and police ran to the scene, they found the bodies of Mayma, Martha, her daughter, John, her son, Ernest Weston, Thomas Bunker, and Emile Brodel. Lindblom, the gardener who had escaped, would later die due to complications from burns. In the span of 20 minutes, seven people had died tragically at the hands of one man. But why? Carlton was found in the basement hours later, barely conscious after having swallowed muriatic acid. He would die seven weeks later from starvation, having never provided a motive for the horror he inflicted that day. His wife would later say that he seemed to be suffering from a mental break in the weeks leading up to the attacks while some of his colleagues at Taliesin would claim that he had been the recipient of racial slurs in the preceding days, possibly inciting an incendiary rage. Still, others have claimed that Mayma had told Carlton and his wife that they were to be fired, perhaps even that afternoon. Though the brutal crime was an open and shut case, the motive remains a mystery to this day. That's one of my buildings. Well, I've heard a lot of that type of reaction, and I've always discounted it as worthless, and I think it is. And I think any man who really has faith in himself will be dubbed arrogant by his fellows. I think that's what happened to me. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. 
your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. This story is the one that got Clever Confidential started. We were curious as to why more people didn't know about it. While everyone knows Frank Lloyd Wright, how could it be that this gruesome chapter remains underreported? Was it Wright's own seeming unwillingness to confront the demons of this tragedy? Did he court disaster with his flagrant flaunting of moral norms? Wright is famously quoted as saying, Laws and rules are made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. It is infinitely more difficult to live without rules. But that is what the really honest, sincere, thinking man is compelled to do. We wanted to know how this and other tragedies surrounding America's greatest architect affected the man and even the architecture itself. We wanted to know how Wright's beloved home state of Wisconsin shaped him in this event, and subsequently how this event has shaped Wisconsin. How is it perceived in Wisconsin versus the rest of the world? Did the rest of the world turn a blind eye to the architect's seemingly sociopathic tendencies because they were so enamored of the architectural genius? To help us gain some cultural context, we asked Chicago-based architect Brad Lynch, himself a Wisconsinite like Wright, to help us paint a picture of the place, the profession, and the sometimes twisted, sometimes tragic nature of creative professions. My name is Brad Lynch. I'm in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm the founding principal of the architecture and design firm Brennan Stoll and Lynch. I was born in Racine, Wisconsin. The youngest of five children, I was the only one born in the United States. My dad's from Ottawa, Ontario, and my mom's from New York. And they moved to Racine, Wisconsin, just before I was born. And I grew up there until I went away to school. I lived just a couple of doors down from a Frank Lloyd Wright house. I think that, you know, um, uh, the aesthetic that he developed, which I think was his own. You know, it's certainly like all things is influenced. You can't say that he started from scratch and just came up with these ideas, but he did make them his own. He made them his own in terms of design and capability and talent. But, you know, he always had to have a story behind it and in order to sell it. First of all, you know, you got to remember the general public only knows two names of architects in America. Right. One well, is yeah, Thomas, Wright's one of them. <laughs> Wright is one of them, and the other one is Thomas Jefferson, and the only reason they know his name is because he was president. And the other thing is that architects, you can't get away from a major influence like Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say Wright had nothing to do with your work, but I, I would challenge anybody that's doing contemporary modern work that doesn't have some love of Wright's work. I, I, I would say that for me, I'd, I'd, I spend a lot of time not wanting to have influence from Frank Lloyd Wright, but I can't do anything about it. But even, even the days of Taliesin, in terms of people coming there to work as apprentices, they were coming from all over the world. He had a, he had a even back in the 20s, he had a worldwide reputation and uh, as a, an important figure in architecture. He's just all around. You can't mm. get away from him. And, and then as I grew older, then I heard stories and so forth about 
you know, some of the things that he had done. Wisconsin has a very interesting and unique history, um, more so than a lot of other states. And it was a very progressive state. It was um, the first state that had a welfare system. It was the first state that had a university system or the Wisconsin idea where within you could go to any college or university within 70 miles of you. So it was, and it was the 33rd largest state and it had the third largest university system. Wow. Uh, it was the birthplace of public radio and public television. And uh, it was just, a, it was a very progressive liberal state. It was the birthplace of the Republican party. And there was the progressive wing of the Republican party, which was kind of run by this family called the Lofalets. And they promoted this Wisconsin idea, Wisconsin idea in terms of education, in terms of resources, and in terms of uh, uh, um, the, the ability to get services from the state. And Wisconsin had, uh, like I said, one of the first welfare systems, which was actually developed by Republicans. And they were the and Republicans were the conservationists. So that kind of tells you how things have flipped around. And most of these ideas came from. German and Scandinavian transcendentalists who settled in the area. Mm. And uh, Milwaukee was uh, had a socialist mayor until, I believe, the 60s, from like the 20s to the 60s, something like that. And so it, it, was, uh, it was a state that was uh, very interested in, um, I think, hard work and, and a beautiful state in terms of landscape and, and, and uh property and and uh you know and, and i think i think wright loved it i think he loved uh the, the fact that his forebearers and uncles were farmers and yet they still you know read at night and would wear a bow tie when they went out on a horse with a plow and <laughs> you know there was all these cultural aspects that were that were kind of unique to wisconsin i didn't know about the fires uh, at Taliesin and the murders until I was probably in my twenties. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that, that particular story, I, I wasn't really aware of until I was older and, um, d doing more studying, but the, 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 uh, uh, during my lifetime, there was a lot of people that met right that were still alive and they all, all had something to complain about. Um, <laughs> it, it was, you know, the roofs leaked, uh, you know, he was uh, the, a charlatan. He, you know, would drive into a gas station and fill up his gas and then drive off and say, I'm frankly right. And, uh, you know, there was, was just countless stories. When Mrs. Wright died in Arizona, in her will, I, I don't know how this happened, but she, uh, in her will, had rights body dug up at the cemetery in Spring Green uh, at, in the middle of the night, cremated, and then sent down to be uh, set next to her in Arizona. And that was kind of a big story. And my brother-in-law, who used to be the DA up in Madison, he was driving me out there to this farmhouse. And he, he was just like so mad about, you know, the, the getting ready. And he said, boy, if I still was in prosecutor i would have gone after that I never would have let that happen blah 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 and i go well jim i thought you thought frank Lloyd Wright was an asshole and he goes yeah but he was our asshole <laughs>
I just don't know anybody that I've ever met in regards to a client, a client that wasn't in a fight with him. But even Kaufman's, you know, that, that and he had so much trouble with falling water and so forth, you know, he wasn't saying a bad word about him. So, you know, they called him Mr. Right and they, they uh, believed in his work and they believed in what they accomplished for him, even though some of it was, you know, didn't work correctly, functionally. And it didn't keep out the rain necessarily in some instances, but um, they still liked him. Same with The Apprentices. So I, I don't know how you balance that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've probably heard this story, but uh, this is the one that I know hearing from the daughter is that Herbert Johnson's nickname was Hib. And uh, so the first dinner party they had, he he had designed this dining table. It's ridiculous. It's still there if you were going to Wingspread, but the, the, the table slides into the kitchen. And it's a very long, long table that slides into the kitchen. They load the food on the table and then it slides it and slides back out. <laughs> and and uh, so there's like an opening above the table that you, know, you pull back these shutters and um, you come back and the, the table comes out and it was pouring rain. First big dinner and uh, that he's having in the house with um, supposedly, you know, a lot of important people there. And he's sitting at the end of the table. He's he's bald, and the next thing you know, there's water dripping right on his bald head. <laughs> and, um, and and this is actually a true story. So he he call the phone's behind him. He picks up the phone, gets the operator, says, uh, "Give me Frank Lloyd Wright in Tucson, Arizona." And uh, he goes. Uh, so back in those days, that's how you made a call. And um, so he gets right in line. He goes, I'm, ha- I'm sitting here having dinner with a group of my friends and it's pouring rain on my head. And Wright's response was move your chair. Hib. <laughs> I don't think having tragedy in your life makes you mm-hmm. unlikable. I don't either. I think a tragic events who is somebody who's creative only makes them more determined in terms of their work. Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about, like how it may have galvanized his resolve, maybe even, you know, made him come face to face with his own mortality and then resolve to achieve even more before that happened. He certainly was concerned with his legacy. There's no question. Yeah. And um, the uh, I think that and he's also concerned about how what what. His, what people's perception of him was in regard to his legacy. So I think that had a lot to do with his, the stories that he did make up because he wanted to be thought of in a certain way. 
deep down, I am sure he was very insecure. And I think a lot of the things that he did um, were to uh, give his way of life and his approach to life uh, um, uh, uh, some meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of the... um, One of the, the, I can't remember who wrote about this, but when when his first wife died before he did, um, he was actually very grief-stricken and depressed uh, in his last couple of years. So, you know, because that was the beginning of his life. And he was reaching the end of his. There's so many different tragedies and stories that surround that, um, you know, it's like, where do you begin? And um, I think that for someone who has the perseverance to move on from those, you know, I I think people are intrigued by those stories, but I don't know what that really has to do with his work. I can tell you why I'm intrigued and what I think it has to do with his work. I don't know that it influenced his architecture, but I think we've, immortalized him by calling him a genius. And in doing so, we've oversimplified him to be this sort of inaccessible, um, gifted, singly faceted person. But when you become aware of the richness of his life, some of it marked by tragedy, um, you start to think of him more as a human. And when you start to think of him more as a human, then his work becomes even that much richer because he's not like he wasn't beamed from outer space. He's a real person who, you know, against a lot of odds, just, you know, was able to transcend boundaries of existing architecture. Um, And then I also think when we revere him as an architect and celebrate him as a human who also had a full life, you know, with the full spectrum of emotion and tragedy and consequence, then it becomes less inaccessible for future architects to attempt something like that. I think it's really important to talk about people as full humans. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's, and perhaps this was, you know, a Frank Lloyd Wright thing was he is sort of caught in that middle. And a lot of people are, I think, um, between being an artist and being an architect. And I think an artist is granted a lot more leeway um, in terms of doing what they want to do, because an artist is supposed to be singular, and architecture and design is much more about, sorry, collaboration. Um, but if you're an artist who is doing architecture, I could see how you can run into some challenges. I feel like the work is even that much more interesting when you know oh, yeah, the yeah. context under which it was created, you know, like dealing For, with uh, this intense insecurity this public criticism of his lifestyle this tragedy that he that he almost had to brush under the rug because if he gave the public any um you know inch they would have taken a mile in terms of condemning his lifestyle and in terms of i I think they even said the angel of vengeance or somebody was responsible Mm. for this so he almost had to make it go away so he could continue doing his work but now, in terms of investigating his legacy, I don't think we do him or ourselves any favors by immortalizing him and mythologizing him as some sort of inhuman genius. To me, it feels like 
you can't separate the two even though you know his work is his life and like you can't separate it and yeah it's not like he clocked out at five right yeah exactly and and so i think it like you said it adds this uh just real richness when you start to see the totality of the person responsible for bringing this work to life do you believe in person in your personal immortality yes you believe so far as i am immortal i will be immortal to me young has no meaning it's something you can do nothing about nothing at all but youth is a quality and if you have it you never lose it and when they put you into the box that's your immortality Could Wright's tendencies to ignore the negative have played a role in the tragedy at Taliesin? Could the tendency to ignore or to try to ignore the challenges simmering below the surface lead to an explosion, murders in this case, in one form or another? Rather than confronting the problems head on and putting out fires, both literal and figurative, before they become tragic, Wright seemed to ignore any and all criticism and do what he believed was right. Could this have exacerbated the problems brewing at Taliesin? Could FLW or anyone have seen the murderous tendencies of Julian Carlton if they had chosen to? Creative people are so often pushed into adversarial relationships with critics. They are told to ignore bad press and plow ahead. But is there another way to exist in relation to critics and criticism? A way to not let the critics crush you as a creative, but to embrace it and use the criticism to get better and be better? Might understanding life, with all its inconsistencies, and tragedies as well as its triumphs, point us to a more meaningful relationship with and a deeper understanding of not just ourselves, but others? We think so. Thanks for listening to Clever Confidential. To see images and more, head to cleverpodcast.com. For our next episode, we'll be delving into the story of Italian design legend Olivetti and all of the international mysteries and scandals surrounding the race to create the world's first desktop computer. If you like Clever Confidential and want to hear more, please support us by telling your friends and letting us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. Thank you to Brad Lynch of Brennan Stool and Lynch Architects for lending his expertise, insight, and colorful commentary. Clever Confidential is produced by 2VDE Media. Camille Stennis lended her audio wizardry for editing and sound design. Ilana Nevins did some heavy lifting production assistance. Our huge thanks to both. Our theme music is Astronomy by Thin White Rope from their album In a Spanish Cave, courtesy of Frontier Records. Thanks to the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas for the clip of Mike Wallace interviewing Frank Lloyd Wright. Clever is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to discover more great shows. They curate the best of them so you don't have to. I think the common man is responsible for the drift toward conformity now that is going to ruin our democracy and is not according to our democratic faith. And I believe what you call the common man is what I call the common man, a man who believes in nothing he can't see 
and he can't see anything he can't put his hand on. 